Hello and a very, very warm welcome to the Women Leading Show. I am thrilled to be here today with my guest from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm not going to do accents, I'm really very bad at them. Um, so thrilled to introduce you today to Caroline Durham of the Legal Policy, she's a Legal Policy Director at Georgia in the United States. Welcome, Caroline. Oh, Joe, it's so great to be here with you and I'm really excited for us having a chance to talk and um, it's always a joy to be with you and I love the work that the Women Leading Show is doing, so thank you. Thank you. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. We, we were uh, connected through one of my uh, dear soul sisters, Teresa Corsa, who I know is likewise to you. Um, so I'm really thrilled to have you on the show today. I'm Jo Baldwin-Trot, the host of Women Leading. I'm also the editor and one of the authors in the very first Women Leading book, which is available on Amazon, uh, as most things are these days. <laughs> Can you buy a car there yet? I don't know. That, that'll be next. Buy your car. <laughs> anyway, digressing, but here is the Women Leading book. It's available on Amazon. It's 18 stories, amazing stories from men and women about leadership and incredible stories of inspiration, whether you are at the beginning of what you feel is your leading um, a leadership journey or you are a fully fledged leader. Uh, so I'm really super doubly thrilled to have Caroline on our show today. Um, firstly, because of what her role and her work is in. And secondly, because Caroline is one of the authors in the forthcoming Women Leading book, which is called Women Leading in Our New World. So this is very much a conversation and messages of inspiration for leadership moving forward. Um, I'm going to send it to every male leader I can think of because actually I feel that this will be a beautiful message to male leaders who are currently in the roles that women actually could be doing instead. Um, but let's not uh, let's not me go down my <laughs> rant, ranty road. Let's uh, let's stick with um, with you, Caroline, because you have a job that I truly completely admire. I just think it's remarkable to have the kind of job and work in the field you do. Um, and I'm going to add, especially as a woman. So how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Um, it's a good day to be doing this work. It's a good time to be doing this work and progress is being made. Um, and I'll just to, to give the viewers a little bit of a taste. Um, so I spent 30 years as a public defender in state and federal court. And what that means is I represented um, people who were not able to afford a lawyer that were charged with all sorts of crimes. And my real focus was serious crimes. And what I learned in those 30 years is it's important to have good lawyers representing people to fight for their freedom, to right the system when the wrong people are arrested, when an injustice is carried out. But what I also figured out, Joe, very quickly, was you could be the best lawyer possible when you're working in a broken system. And I sort of one of the analogies I use is this. Uh, Mario Andretti is a, a professional race car driver who wins all sorts of national big championships. But if you put him in a car that's got three wheels and two spark plugs, it is never going to run right. So I could be the best lawyer in the world, and it doesn't change the system I'm working in. And so Georgia Appleseed came on my radar as I started to do volunteer work, and our focus is systems change. We're a law and policy organization that looks at the systems and the inequities in, this, in those systems ranging from schools and how that impacts children and how they're disciplined and the lack of services, black and brown and 
uh, LGBTQ and poor children get so that there's a greater likelihood that they end up in prison and become clients of public defenders. And so the information I had around what I learned, every person I represented, every person I met through my work as a public defender had tremendous skills and gifts that had been snuffed out or, or, or uh, othered. Um, and so they oftentimes became my client because they only had two bad choices. And so my role now is to say, how do we give every child and every family, right now the focus is in Georgia, the resources so that they get a strong education and they have healthy homes to live in and they can thrive. Wow, that's no mean feat, Caroline, is it, to uh, take them out? But I'm, um, it's fantastic that you are um, involved in this because obviously I've got uh, a lot of personal experience from mm -hmm. my previous, one of my previous jobs anyway. I totally agree. I just, it, it, it used to sicken me, um, mm -hmm. disgust me and just completely sadden me how many wonderful, souls and beautiful you know boys and girls mostly boys and um, young men with clearly so much potential so smart you know they were so good at committing crime they had to be smart to be that good at committing crime it, you know let's let's just be really kind of pragmatic about it it takes it takes a lot to be quite good at committing crime <laughs> and there's certainly certain types of crime and actually they were just bright and smart but like you say there was a statement you just gave which was they only have two bad choices that breaks my heart to hear that statement but I think for any parent who is trying to bring up their children in, and give them as many great choices as they possibly can give them um, when you and this is what you know this is such such fundamental pivotal point isn't it actually these children often only have two bad choices um, which is you know just just catastrophic um, what I you know, one of the other pieces, Joe, that, that we work at Georgia Appleseed around, we call about dismantling the school to prison pipeline. So what we know in the United States is the way in which we discipline children, the way in which um, uh, they are, 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 are engaged when they are acting in a way that is not how the grown folks want them to act. Um, if they end up in the juvenile court system, the likelihood is skyrocketed that they end up in prison. So our focus on that too is to look at how we're responding to behavior. And what we know, children and really grown folks too, a child's behavior is communication. So in some respects, sometimes they don't have the words uh, to express where they're at and they've been through a trauma. This is a traumatic time right now for the world, just with the pandemic. Um, in the United States, with what we're seeing is happening at the hands of police officers, with our, you know, mostly black men, but black women too, um, just in other traumas. And so a child comes to school, we believe that a, a child wakes up in the morning and wants to have a good day, but they're maybe not in a stable home. Um, maybe their parents are not around. All the things that come in and they come to school and they respond to something. They're trying to communicate and they don't use their words. If the response is we're gonna put you out of school, that means that they're not getting education. That means they're, they're being, getting messages that they're less than. And so part of what we look at um, is the way in which schools discipline and respond to behavior in a way that lifts the child up and addresses what's going on, as opposed to saying you're bad and we're gonna put you out. And there are a lot of wonderful models that are in Georgia, but that's, that really is about saying, what are we doing at that early stage? to address and engage and say, what's happening? We focus a lot on children who are in foster care. So they've been taken from their biological families. 
that in and of itself is a trauma, right? And so um, what we know is the discipline rates for out-of-school discipline, so long-term suspensions and expulsions, are higher for children in foster care, again, for black and brown children, for LGBTQ children, for children in poverty. And part of what we work to do is to identify and lift up solutions to that. What are the school-based resources that are there? What are the school justice partnerships? We have um, courthouses where the juvenile courts and the school districts are coming together to say, we know what the numbers tell us and what are our, our alternatives? Because the juvenile court judges started saying, look, if you bring these kids to us, we have a limited toolkit and we also know the long-term range. So to convene and get people talking about um, important, supportive, creative ways that keep our children in school, that increase graduation rates, that mean they become more productive as individuals and that's better for the community. So it's a lot. It's doable though. That's what I'm gonna tell you, Joe, it is doable. Wow, that's good to hear because it just, <laughs> my so my ex-teacher head is picking now and I just know how tough it is to, you know, it, it's literally a step at a time, isn't it? But um, you know, we have this technology to, to completely centralize and and dispel you know, relevant programs. It's it's all there, isn't it, if it's used correctly and isn't just another program that lands in a head teacher's lap. And oh, and here you've got to do this because they are phenomenally busy, you know. The te I, as much as the nursing and, and the doctors of this world have had a tough time, I also feel the teachers, teaching staff, Absolutely. have had a, rem a remarkably stressful time trying to keep everything going and as well as having to implement all this new legislation. Um, yeah, but I, I, I really, I think it's fantastic that you're going back to that root cause and that, you know, that root behavior. Um, and how exactly are you, how exactly are you supporting the change of that behavior for that one individual? How is that, or how is that looking? Sure. Well, well. so part of what Georgia Appleseed does is to um, bring together the experts, to bring together the agency heads. In some instances, we support and represent the foster children in the disciplinary hearings. Um, we um, talk about school-based behavioral health. So school um, has for years been more than reading and writing. I mean, that's central. Like you talk about that role of the teacher in the classroom. But it really is. School is a um, primary community center. Um, and it's a place for other services. It might be counseling that needs to be provided. It might be supports around education. It might be supports to deal with um, those components that are going um, to cause behavior that, that could get a child, quote, in trouble. Um, and so by lifting up the models and ensuring that resources are there, so we do work at the state house, so from a legislative perspective, um, to engaging and convening um, community members to say, what do you see the solutions to be? Um, and so what that does is, what are the services that each school needs for the particular community, for the particular needs? Um, we have um, a program called PBIS, Positive Behavioral Intervention Systems. And that is um, a tiered model that says there is a foundational piece that all schools should have for all students that is about social emotional learning, the atmosphere we're creating, a positive school climate, so that by lifting up all of the children, then we see that there are some children that need some additional services, and then you get to the top of the tier, which are sort of special education needs. And so through these types of structures, we're able to um, lift up the service providers, 
um, lift out things like the Department of Education, the Department of Family Services, and have them work together. Some of what George Appleseed does is to bring those agencies together to de-silo them. Um, and it works, it's, it works real well when it's there. Part of the challenge though, Joe, and this is not just um, specific to Georgia. Many states across the United States, you have Atlanta and Georgia, and then as you get out from Atlanta, it's much more rural. What that means oftentimes is the resources are fewer. And so you have a school in Atlanta where you have 11 different employees doing different pieces and responsibilities um, within the school. And then you get to a place like Troop County, which is more rural, and you've got a school counselor that's wearing 11 hats. And so the other component is a really big challenge, really big challenge to say, how do we ensure services and resources are there for each school to provide those services? Um, and I think that part of the challenge there, I talk about every child is our child. Now, I don't have any biological children. I have godchildren, I have nieces and nephews. I have you know friends, kids that are as important to me as, as my own child would be. My responsibility is not just to the children that are in my home, but the kids at the bus stop, the kids in the neighborhood store. And so if we can begin to remember that we are all connected and that when every child succeeds, we all succeed. So that this fight over what money gets spent at what school and we spend more money on taxes, well, you've got more money to give to taxes. You've got more money to give to supports so that there was an equity um, in the way schools have what they need. So these services and these approaches to children lifts up all kids. Um, and I think that's really critical because again, as we do that, for those who need, those in the audience, y'all, who need to know the economic piece, it's about the dollar. If we spend money at the school level, what that does in the long run is it means that money that's being spent, when Joe was a police officer and I was a public defender, and let's say they, we had a similar case, the money that was spent for one court hearing to bring somebody in and all of that staff and all of the energy, that money then gets to be put in the community instead of in locking people up. That money gets to be put in investing in people and getting them to recognize um, maybe they're, they wanted to be a doctor and they got sidetracked. Maybe they want to be a car salesman. Maybe they want to be a school teacher. And so the resources are there early on being spent in positive ways and instead of constrictive separating ways. Yeah, because the, the cost, the cost of incarceration um, yes. is phenomenal. The cost of court procedures is phenomenal. And the cost of uh, foster care and it, it is all phenomenal compared to a scheme that provides a well-being service. Um, yes. compared to having one or however many counsellors you need at college. And I've, I've faced this conversation so many times where um, I've, I've been met with, you know, the kind of remarks like, well, we shouldn't need this kind of service at school. No, we shouldn't if we lived in an ideal society where every child was valued and nurtured. But sadly, that isn't the case. Um, so absolutely, I mean, one of my authors... Uh, I, you know, I connect you with him, but Gethin Jones is yes. um, he, he himself. Do you know Gethin? Uh, you've, I've read some of his stuff, yes. Yeah, so he's doing a remarkable program. He's working with Ministry of Justice here to do is virtually what you're doing, you know, to change the systems 
and really to nurture the children that are in foster care um, and those that are in that are just literally you know going through such difficult times I was recently um, I recently interviewed another author of the Being Fine book who's coming in second edition he's collated stories and actually one of them is from a girl that was in foster care and I, I'm not even going to go into the, the level of trauma this poor girl suffered but I remember seeing it as a police officer. It's still happening. There's abuse. There's there's violence. There's aggression, um, and it's it's very normalised in. And that's the worst, most tragic thing. It's very normalised in these homes, um, and so how on earth? And these are the children that are. But I think that's, you've got to have a focus, haven't you, with with a policy, with with um, a strategy. It's and I think it's great that you're focusing on these children that are the most vulnerable. And how, to, how does um how about well-being and kind of uh, you know I know meditation classes British School of Meditation are trying to get meditation at every school in the UK at the moment. Um, that's one hell of a, a task. How does that feature um, is or is that featuring in what you're offering? Is that so? So it features in what I offer in some other other realms of my world. Um, it's not specific. It's one option within this idea of. Um, providing supports across the school. I've, what I've seen in that in the United States generally um, is that they use it for children who get in trouble that you give them uh, meditation as alternative. My suggestion, and it sounds like what y'all are talking about doing, is provide it for all children. Um, I, I'm a, a, a Dharma teacher uh, within the Buddhist practices. Thich Nhat Hanh is the lineage uh, that I am connected to. Um, and I lead meditation and wellness trainings for public defenders and for what I call change agents, um, which really can be anybody because this work um, to be human and live is challenging. And so to take that time, um, like we can do it right now, I can feel my feet on the ground. I can feel the chair underneath me. My breath is always with me. So when I get in that hurriedness, when I get in a stress place, if I can stop and take three deep breaths, it tells the body from a physiolo physiological standpoint, you are not in a place of stress, fight or flight, I don't need to be there. And so I, that component for children matters. And what we know is when we bring it in for, in a school setting, the children benefit, the staff and the teachers benefit. What we also know is when we have those sort of environments that are positive, that have services for children that are engaging, teacher, happiness and retention is higher. So that shows the interconnectedness. Um, it's really important for us to everybody to take the time to be grounded, um, even if it's five minutes a day, um, even if it's at a stoplight to breathe deep, in line at the grocery store, to take the time and just breathe. A lot of folks, friends of mine are like, I can't do meditation because I think all the time and we, you know, we have this idea that the point of meditation is not to think. Our minds were created to think, so the thoughts are going to be there. The question is, is we follow it. It's sort of like a cloud. And so the other piece, if you haven't done meditation and you want to try it just for a few minutes, just sit like we're, uh, Joe and I are both seated. I can feel the, the comfort of the chair with me, the feet on the ground. Um, you can do it with your eyes open. You can do it with your eyes closed. And it's focusing on your breath. So as you breathe in, just feel your breath to your lungs. And then as you breathe out, feel it go back out. And that's your focus. 
And I'll tell you, when I do my meditation in the morning, sometimes what pops in is I got to remember to call so-and-so. That's going to happen. The idea of meditation is to say, oh, it's a thought and let it go and go back to my breath. It's giving us a chance to not do and to simply be. And I'll tell you, Joe, that really just a few minutes in a day makes all the difference in the world um, to, to being present. Um, there are times when my partner will say, you have meditated a day, haven't she can tell. Because my energy is different. My, my, yeah. my engagement is different. And so bringing that to schools is a really great way to have children engage. And what we know, so, so the Dalai Lama actually worked with Emory University. They've got a whole curriculum of engaging mindfulness in um, K through, I think it's kindergarten through fifth grade, but it may be through 12th grade. Um, and I'll share, I had the honor of being in India with the Dalai Lama when he, when Emory released the most recent uh, curriculum. And one of the feedbacks they've gotten is the parents have talked about how different the children are when they get home. They're more at ease. They're helping in the kitchen. And so that's, it's just this idea that, that we've gotten to a place, and I think this is part of the pandemic. I don't know if you want to go down this road. Um, but part of the pandemic is us stopping and having to sit still and because there was so much going on that really the earth and our body said, mm -mm, you got to stop, you got to sit, you need to isolate in the sense of being in your own. And when we take care of ourselves in the singular, I can show up better for you as my friend. I can show up better for my family. I can be more grounded in the work that I'm doing. It doesn't mean that stress won't come through. Um, that's uh, the Buddha says there is suffering. That's the first noble truth. Um, I used to resist that. And I think I guess maybe it's true. The question is, how do we respond to it? Things can be chaotic around us and we can be in the center of the tornado rather than being part of the tornado. So, yeah. And, and isn't that, you know, hopefully anyone watching this or listening to this on the podcast um, will just just consider where they can bring a moment of meditation into their lives. I mean, I would implore if I was still teaching now, um, in fact, it, this is funny that you're, you're on the show today because I've just had an hour's call with someone who is um, just getting me some voluntary work in my local schools where I live now. So I'm really excited to be going back into schools, into the education environment, which I absolutely love. It's part of my um, my being, and I am, and I will be, you know, fully promoting every teacher I come across and have the opportunity to meet to just engage with our students in meditation. Every teacher can do that now, just for yes. five minutes, five minutes at the start of every lesson. I know schools here are doing this. Um, but I really think even if you have um, children that are phenomenally challenged and they still fidget and they just creating the energy of someone in the classroom will, will, will get it fully and someone will be able to focus fully. And the resonance of that one child and the teacher being fully present in that will have an impact. You know, we are energetic beings. We're fully impacted by what's around us as well as what's within so, you know, I just think everyone can bring this in. Um, and it, when it was International Women's Day last year, I was very uh, honored to give a talk to Citibank, which is obviously a bank that you'll be very familiar with, it's US-based. The first thing I did was a meditation, and, and I gave Reiki to, I think it was 130 
um, guests at the event, um, and nobody had ever done that before. But I just felt the need to bring down and bring and bring to center um, the moment of International Women's Day. And actually, now I bring it into every talk I do. Every talk I do starts with, and, uh, and sometimes you get the odd look. So some, you know, you get that kind of oh, eyebrow raising. <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to me just because you know there are people that haven't gone down this path yet. Thankfully, like you say, um, Caroline, over the last year, this has been a monumental mindfulness for me um, mm -hmm. and for many people. And I think there's a lot of potential here. Before, um, as time has ticked away, but before we kind of uh, just come to a conclusion, I'd like to bring in, obviously, gender and mm -hmm. equality. Um, you know, again, I can only imagine how your, your path has been for you, Georgia, you know, what has that been like for you to, to come through the ranks and actually progress a career in, in what I, I should imagine? Tell us about whether that is very male-dominated and your experience if you could be. Oh, thank you. And thank you for that opportunity, Joe. Um, so I have to start with my foundation, and that is I'm the youngest of three and I have two older brothers that I started running behind early, early on. Um, and because I want to, you know, that's what you do. And so for me, I actually yeah. do a little bit of a shift and become aware of the fact that as a woman, I was supposed to be quiet. As a woman, I was supposed to sit back. Um, and when I, I had that awareness, like in my mid-20s, which is uh, fascinating, but I, I lift that up in part to say there are different types of models. Within the, the, the court system, um, as a as a attorney, what I often found was the older um, attorneys that were male and white would have a tendency, I can think very clearly, of having meetings, and they would almost literally pat me on the top of the head. You just sit there and do what you And they didn't, they didn't do it in a way that they meant to. So this is the thing I want to lift up is um, and say to the men that are watching, um, when we talk about this, we're not saying that you're you're bad or or it's it's a thing that maybe you're not aware of. Um, and so I, I lift that up as well. And the question in part is, how do you keep pushing forward? Um, the thing to me, the most dramatic um, uh, view of not just how women are treated, but sometimes how women treat women, is the election here in the United States where Hillary Clinton lost. And something like 51% of the white women who voted, voted for the male candidate. And what is that about? And so in my moving up, in my engagement, um, there had to become awareness. And I was already sort of a very vocal person. The piece that I had to step into was where other women in the room, um, to say to them, speak up. You are powerful. You have, and, and, and so that they began to lift up as well. Um, it's really remarkable to be with um, women because we bring all sorts of perspectives that aren't there. And I want to say, I don't mean to bring politics in a lot, but last night, the current administration, there was an address by our president. And our vice president is a woman of color and uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi, who's also a leader in Congress. And so you had the president um, who's male with two women on either side. And just the visual there's a way in which um, we bring just a different perspective. There's yin and yang. Um, and so for me, the moving up has been um, needing to be self-aware, which I think all women need to understand, that we need to understand how what we're dealing with and, and the fact that it's 2021 and we talk about breaking glass ceilings. 
and oftentimes it's women of color that are break the first woman of color. Um, and so the awareness that um, we can break the ceilings, that we lift everybody up together, um, and that things get more interesting, more creative, and there are more solutions when women are engaged in the leadership. So I hope that gets to what you were asking. Yeah, I think it does. You raise some great points there. I mean, I love the point that you mentioned there about uh, not judging. You know, we do what we, we're used to doing. It's really quite simple, isn't it? Um, yeah. Well, I know I certainly do, and all my clients is that you know it's the main issue they come to me with is that I just keep doing this. Um, so it, it's easy just to keep doing what you're used to doing, and you know, I, it, I feel the the valid point, really valid point there, is that it, it can be quite easy to judge a male behaviour, any behaviour. Um, but actually, you know, unfortunately, until you're given an opportunity to actually address and and to recognise, um, and I'm talk this is a this is across the board really in any discrimination or any ism as I call it, um, that you know, you're actually you're actually mirroring and actually giving a moment for someone to look at their behaviour, because without doing that, just to come in at the jugular and say you've just done that, you've just done that. Um, and yes, it may require, from a woman's point of view, I've been there myself, and you're the only female in the room, it may require you stepping up a little bit, using a slightly louder voice than you would normally, um, but staying true to yourself, I feel it can it can be done, and you've achieved that in your role, and you know, I, I should imagine it's phenomenally male-led, um, male your, your, um, your organization, it's, it, is it? Our, our executive, our, we were, our founder, though, is a woman. She was a, a juvenile court judge, Sharon Hill, some years ago, created Georgia Appleseed. Um, but there are, our current um, executive director and the one before a male, and I will tell you that um, our executive director is really works within himself and looking at the organization as a whole, um, recognizing that he's a white, straight male. Um, what does that mean for him and educating himself? He puts so much energy in to um, continuing to grow himself and also creating a space where each of us can grow as well around all of those issues and having him as a leader um, and an understander of what's going on. Um, and so I, I just, if he were here, I would really look up Michael Waller to say he is working hard and doing great things to um, use his leadership in a way that doesn't keep people down, so. Yeah, that's amazing. Fantastic. Well, I'm really excited to hear what you're offering, and um, obviously I can connect you with Gethin, but it's just fascinating, and it warms my heart. I've still got a lot of friends in the police force um, to know that the systems are changing, um, and these children that deserve every opportunity that every child has um, are being supported um, more than they were, which is really exciting. I'd like to, at this point, just mention and... Um, and uh, sort of uh, bring up the wonderful Teresa Corso who brought us yes. together um, and mentioned The Thread. So there's a podcast called The Thread. It's available on all your podcast channels and also on Facebook. The Thread, uh, it's got a beautiful blue brand color. We, Caroline and I were very blessed, uh, I feel, uh, to be as part of a very powerful, moving, distressing, but positive conversation about race. Um, and uh, that's available on that podcast as well as many other amazing interviews that Teresa 
and her uh, co-partner Catherine have done. So I'm really excited, Caroline, to be receiving your chapter soon for the next yes. leading book. Um, but uh, on that point, I'd just like to mention I'm looking for some male authors. So every time I create a leadership book, um, it is called Women Leading, but actually it's more about equality and about stepping up leadership, changing our leadership for our new world. The next book is called Women Leading in Our New World. If you're a guy and you're watching this and you have a passion for equality and you have a message about where you would like to see leadership going and why, then please get in touch with me at properbookspublishing at gmail.com. We'd love to have you in the book as much as I'm very happy to publish with all virtually women. We've got one male. <laughs> I don't want to say he's a token male, um, but at the moment he, he looks a bit like that and he definitely isn't meant to be. Um, so I'd love more male authors for this for this conversation because I know there's so many men out there that are hoping and aspiring to create more equality in all the different um, levels that they can. So I'd love to hear from you. Caroline Durham, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really super duper to hear from you. So glad to be with you, Joe, and it's been a pleasure. And I know you and I have more conversations to have online, offline, and thank you for the opportunity. It's such a pleasure. You can get hold of Caroline on LinkedIn if you'd like to, and obviously look up Georgia Appleseed. I'm sure there's plenty of information there um, on the internet for you. And uh, yeah, wishing you the very best. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. We will be back again actually next Friday at 12 um, p.m. BST, <laughs> not GMT now, BST, 12 p.m. with the next Women Reading Show. And uh, uh, you'll see the book at the moment is available on Amazon. That's it from me. I'm Joe Baldwin-Trot. Take care for now. Have a great day, whatever you're up to. Bye.